Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 93 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, is Jesus God? How is Jesus the image of the invisible God? So happy Tuesday, friends. We are now just a little over a quarter of the way through the year. So that's pretty cool. We've made it this far, 93 episodes in. I want to invite you to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Pretty much every episode has a full transcript there, maybe even with some extra stuff. So any of my quotes from Spurgeon or Piper or Keller or Habermas or whoever, you can find the full quote and the source of that quote on the website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I want to keep asking you to share this with your friends on social media and by word of mouth. Our goal is to get as many people involved in hearing the Word of God and listening to the Word of God and reading the Word of God as possible. And when you share the show on social media, it sure does help with that. Uh, and there's a lot of you guys that do that. Willem in Indiana is faithful to do that. Others are uh, Pam and Stan on Facebook. Thank you guys for sharing the show. I appreciate it. Please keep it up. I think it. Uh, I think it's good, not necessarily to listen to me talking, but to hear the Word of God four chapters a day. And really, we probably cover more than that because we read a lot of other scriptures too. So keep it up, keep sharing, review the show on iTunes and other places as well, and know that I appreciate it very, very much. So our Bible passages today are Leviticus 2 and 3, Proverbs 18, John 21, and Colossians 1. Our focus passage is in Colossians 1, which contains yet another hymn or creedal statement about Jesus. It's very similar to Philippians 2, if you remember that from last week. Before we get there, however, I really would like to focus a little bit on the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus that we see in John chapter 21. Some of the disciples have gone out on the lake to fish, and they have spent all night fruitlessly trying to catch fish and coming up just utterly empty. Upon their return, a mysterious person near shore, now he's a hundred yards away, so you can kind of understand how the disciples didn't recognize him, but this guy calls out to them and tells them to lower their nets on the right side of the boat. It's pretty unusual, and in the Sea of Galilee, my understanding is this close to land is not a great place to lower your nets to catch fish because it's going to be a little bit too shallow, but they do anyway, and they catch an incredible haul of fish. John notices that the mysterious person on shore is, in fact, Jesus, and Peter, ever impulsive, jumps into the water and swims a hundred yards over to Jesus, leaving the other guys to drag the nearly bursting nets, which contain 153 large fish, to shore. Now, me, I love fishing. It's one of my favorite things to do. So, even just writing this article, which basically the way I do the podcast is I write out the article and then I sort of read through it and add some spontaneity in there, uh, I thought, man, is Peter jumping into shark-infested waters? What kind of fish are we catching here? Well, I paused everything and I went to read about the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. It's the same thing. And hey, lo and behold, it's a freshwater lake, which is kind of interesting. The second lowest lake in the world, the Dead Sea being the lowest, and the lowest uh, of the freshwater lakes. 
Even to this day, it is a very important lake for fishing. It's got lots of different fish species in it. And so I was wondering, I wonder what kind of fish they were catching. As near as I can tell, my best guess, and it is a guess because the Bible doesn't actually tell us what kind of fish we're dealing with here, chances are the fish that the disciples caught was some kind of a species of tilapia some of which today are still called St. Peter's fish because that kind of tilapia, uh, and there's a couple of different candidates that are called St. Peter's fish, but that was thought to be the fish that Peter caught uh, with a coin in its mouth to pay the temple tax. Uh, I don't know if you've had tilapia before, but on a mission trip to Africa, Oh, I don't know, about 15 years ago, I had some tilapia from Lake Victoria. Oh my gosh, it was phenomenally good. And the fruit in Africa is phenomenally good. Western fruit, we've kind of genetically engineered it up a little bit, so maybe it's a little more resistant to pests, and maybe it grows a little bit bigger, but it doesn't taste like... uh it doesn't take taste like fruit used to, and African fruit is incredible, and their fish was incredible too. Uh, their ketchup was not phenomenal. It was kind of weird and runny and nasty, but hey, everything else there was good. But I digress a lot, an awful lot. My bad. Back to the story. So the disciples here have caught all of those fish, and the resurrected King Jesus is meeting them on shore, and look what he's done for them. The Lord of all, you know, the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords who's already given his life and suffered for their sins what's he done for these guys he cooked them breakfast how cool is that he grilled them some fish not the ones they caught he i don't know how he came about the fish but you know he's jesus maybe he just created them but he cooked them some fish over charcoals and you know grilled them some fish and had some bread there and breakfast was ready i've never really noticed that as a detail i may mean, have read it before plenty of times but Never really thought, oh my gosh, what a kind thing to do until I was reading through John 21 earlier today in preparation for the show. Uh, but again, that's th- that really shows the character of Jesus, his kindness and his gentleness. But that's not our focus for the day. Our focus is Colossians 1. So let's read it together. And then we're going to return to discuss this amazing hymn and description of Jesus that we find in Colossians 1. So this is Colossians 1 verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience 
joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. Hallelujah. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And here it comes, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant, according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints." God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with all his strength that powerfully works in me. What a powerful and wonderful description of Jesus in this passage. It's stirring. I would encourage you like to read it with your eyes in your app or in a Bible or whatever. Read it a few times. Passages like this have this beautiful way of focusing us on the nature and character of person and person of Jesus. Jesus is the image of God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He's the head of his body, the church, the people of Jesus. He's the beginning and he's the firstborn from the dead. He is the fullness of God. He is the reconciler who brought sinful man and holy God into a right relationship by making peace and covering our sinfulness with his blood, which was poured out on the cross. Oh man, praise him. That is so great. So what do we learn about Jesus from this passage? Let's ask our old friends, Charles Spurgeon and John Piper, starting out with Brother Spurgeon, who says, In order to preach the gospel fully, there must be a very clear description of the person of Christ, and we preach Christ as God, not a man made into a God, nor a God degraded to the level of a man, not something between a man and a God, but very God of very God, one with his Father in every attribute, eternal, having neither beginning of days nor end of years, omnipresent, filling all space, omnipotent, having all power in heaven and on earth, omniscient, knowing all things from eternity, the great creator, preserver, and judge of all, and all things the equal and the express image of the invisible God. 
If we err concerning the deity of Christ, we err everywhere. The gospel that does not reveal a divine Savior is not a gospel at all. It is like a ship without a rudder. The first contrary wind that blows shall drive it to destruction, and woe be to the souls that are trusting in that ship. No shoulders but those almighty ones bear the earth's huge pillars up can ever carry the enormous weight of human guilt and human need. We preach to you Christ, the son of Mary, once sleeping in his mother's arms, yet the infinite, even while he was an infant. Christ, the reputed son of Joseph, toiling in the carpenter's shop, yet being all the while the God who made the heavens and the earth. Christ, who had not where to lay his head, the despised and rejected of men, who is nevertheless over all, God blessed forever. Christ, nailed to the accursed tree, bleeding at every pore and dying on the cross, yet living forevermore. Christ, suffering agonies that are indescribable, yet being at the same time the God at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore. If Christ had not been man, he could not have sympathized with you and me, nor could he have suffered in our place. How could he have been made the covenant of head of the sons and daughters of Adam if he had not been made in all points like them, except that he was without sin? With that one exception, he was just as we are, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, yet he was as truly God as he was man, the one of whom Isaiah was inspired to prophesy. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So in preaching Christ crucified, we preach the glory of heaven, conjoined with the beauty of earth, the perfection of humanity, united with the glory and dignity of deity. Amen. This is what our friend John Piper has to say about this passage. There are two phrases in the verse to look at, but they are easily combined and in fact go together. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, or as we saw from the original words, he being the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. The difference between this qualification for sitting at God's right hand and the other two is that those describe what Christ did, while this describes who he is. What he does is uphold all things by the word of his power and make purification of sins by the worth of his blood. But what is he? Who is he? That's our last question this morning. Who died for sins? Who rose from dead? the dead? Who upholds the universe by the word of his power? Who is sitting at the right hand of God? The answer is Christ is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So what does that mean? It's important that we take these two phrases together because they control each other and keep us on track. When it says that Christ is the exact representation of God's nature, we are to realize that to see Christ is to see God. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, John 14, 9. Colossians 1, 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. To see what God is like, you see what Christ is like. But that could be taken in an entirely wrong way. Suppose you take it to mean that Christ represents God the way a photograph or a painting represents a person, or the way an authorized letter represents the king, or the way a wax impression represents a golden ring. That would be totally wrong. And the other phrase here is meant to protect us from this misunderstanding. 
Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature, not the way a painting represents a person, but the way radiance represents glory. Verse 3 says, he is the radiance of God's glory. In other words, he relates to God the way radiance relates to glory or the way the rays of sunlight relate to the sun. Keep in mind that every analogy between God and natural things is imperfect and will distort if you press it. Nevertheless, consider, for example, number one, there's no time that the sun exists without the beams of radiance. They cannot be separated. The radiance is co-eternal with the glory. Christ is co-eternal with God the Father. Number two, the radiance is the glory radiating out. It is not essentially different from the glory. Christ is God standing forth as separate, but not essentially different from the Father. Number three, thus the radiance is eternally begotten, as it were, by the glory not created or made. If you put a solar-activated calculator in the sunlight, numbers appear on the face of the calculator. These, you could say, are created or made by the sun, but they are not what the sun is, but the rays of the sun are an extension of the sun. So Christ is eternally begotten of the Father, but he was not made or created. Number four, we see the suns by means of seeing the rays of the sun, so we see God the Father by seeing Jesus. The rays of the sun arrive here about eight seconds after they leave the sun, and the round ball of fire that we see in the sky is the image, the exact representation of the sun, not because it is a painting of the sun, but but, but because it is the sun streaming forth in its radiance. So I close this morning, says Piper, by commending this great person to you that you might trust in him and love him and worship him. He is alive and sitting at the right hand of God with all power and authority and will one day come in great glory. He has that exalted place because he is himself God the Son and because he upholds you and me by the word of his power and because he made a perfect purification of sins. Would you not know the one who holds you in being and offers you purification from your sins and reveals God to you the way light reveals the sun? Great questions. Thank you, Pastor John. Finally, I myself want to close this discussion with verses 21 through 23 of Colossians, which uh, if I can put on my English teacher hat for a moment, and yes, I have been an English teacher. Um, I, verses 21 through 23 of Colossians 1 are sort of a thesis or the summary statement of what the whole letter is about, but they also give us a great place to close here as a great summary and exhortation of the good news. So verse 21 says, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless. Oh man, faultless. What a great word. And blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now, one of these days, we're going to talk about that little if in verse 23, which is very similar to the if in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, where Paul says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Yes, one day we will talk about the perseverance of the saints, but today allow me to simply exhort you to remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, to 
hold to the message of the gospel, not shifting away from the hope of the gospel. Rejoice that it is not your strength or the power of your grip that holds on to the rope of rescue of the gospel, but the strength of Jesus that clings to you. Now let's go to Leviticus chapter 2 and 3. Verse 1, when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, it is to consist of fine flour. He is to pour olive oil on it, put frankincense on it, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest will take a handful of fine flour and oil from it, along with all its frankincense, and will burn this memorial portion of it on the altar, a fire offering of a pleasure, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering will belong to Aaron and his sons. It is the holiest part of the fire offering. Offerings to the Lord. When you present a grain offering baked in an oven, it is to be made of fine flour, either unleavened cakes mixed with oil or unleavened wafers coated with oil. If your offering is a grain offering prepared on a griddle, it is to be unleavened bread made of fine flour mixed with oil. Break it into pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your offering is a grain offering prepared in a pan, it is to be made of fine flour with oil. When you bring to the Lord the grain offering made in any of these ways, it is to be presented to the priest, and he will take it to the altar. The priest will remove the memorial portion from the grain offering and burn it on the altar, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering will belong to Aaron and his sons. It is the holiest part of the fire offerings to the Lord. No grain offering that you present to the Lord is to be made with yeast, for you are not to burn any yeast or honey as a fire offering to the Lord. You may present them to the Lord as an offering of first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. You are to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. If you present a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you are to present fresh heads of grain, crushed kernels, roasted on the fire for your grain offering of first fruits. You are to put oil and frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest will then burn some of its crushed kernels and oil with all its frankincense as a fire offering to the Lord. Chapter 3. If his offering is a fellowship sacrifice and he is presenting an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he is to present one without blemish before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of his offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, will splatter the blood on all sides of the altar. He will present part of the fellowship sacrifice as a fire offering to the Lord. The fat surrounding the entrails, all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat on them at the loins. He will also remove the fatty lobe of the liver with the kidneys. Aaron's sons will burn it on the altar along with the burnt offering that is on the burning wood, a fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering is a fellowship sacrifice to the Lord is from the flock, he is to present a male or female without blemish. If he is presenting a lamb for his offering, he is to present it before the Lord. He must lay his hand on the head of his offering, then slaughter it before the tent of meeting. Aaron's sons will splatter its blood on all sides of the altar. He will then present part of the fellowship sacrifice as a fire offering to the Lord, consisting of its fat and the entire fat tail, which he is to remove close to the backbone. He will also remove the fat surrounding the entrails, all the fat on the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat on them at the loins, and the fatty lobe of the liver above the kidneys. Then the priest will burn the food on the altar as a fire offering to the Lord." 
If his offering is a goat, he is to present it before the Lord. He must lay his hand on its head and slaughter it before the tent of meeting. Aaron's sons will splatter its blood on all sides of the altar. He will present part of his offering as a fire offering to the Lord. The fat surrounding the entrails, all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat on them at the loins, he will also remove the fatty lobe of the liver with the kidneys. Then the priest will burn the food on the altar as a fire offering for a pleasing aroma. All fat belongs to the Lord. This is a permanent statute throughout your generations, wherever you live. You must not eat any fat or any blood. Proverbs 18, verse 1. One who isolates himself pursues selfish desires. He rebels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only wants to show off his opinions. When a wicked person comes, contempt also comes, and along with dishonor, derision. The words of a person's mouth are deep waters, a flowing river, a fountain of wisdom. It is not good to show partiality to the guilty, denying an innocent person justice. A fool's lips lead to strife, and his mouth provokes a beating. A fool's mouth is his devastation, and his lips are a trap for his life. A gossip's words are like choice food that goes down to one's innermost being. The one who is lazy in his work is his brother to a vandal. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are protected. The wealth of the rich is his fortified city. In his imagination, it's like a high wall. Before his downfall, a person's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. The one who gives an answer before before he listens, this is foolishness and disgrace for him. A person's spirit can endure sickness, but who can survive a broken spirit? The mind of the discerning acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks it. A person's gift opens doors for him and brings him before the great. The first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. Casting the lot ends quarrels and separates powerful opponents. An offended brother is harder to reach than a fortified city, and quarrels are like the bars of a fortress. From the fruit of a person's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is filled with the product of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. A man who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The poor person pleads, but the rich one answers roughly. One with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. John 21 verse 1. After this, Jesus again revealed himself to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and then they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, Hey, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was Lord, he tied his outer clothing clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've caught, Jesus told them. 
So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was the now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved and asked that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly I tell you that when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told him, follow me. So Peter turned around and saw the disciple Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. So this rumor spread to the brothers and sisters that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not tell him that he would not die. But if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not even the world itself would contain the books that would be written. Amen. Praise God. So we end John today and begin Colossians. A good day. May the Lord and his word dwell richly in your hearts by faith, brothers and sisters. God bless you and Godspeed.